Um, have you in your life ever been uh, on a ship in rough seas? Have you ever been on a boat, on a boat in a storm? Have you ever been in that predicament uh, before? When I was about seven or maybe about eight years old, I remember being on a ferry. And uh, I was on this ferry at a time where there was a, a, an incredibly violent storm. And I remember the storm absolutely blowing my mind uh, as a kid. I'm sure you can imagine the sort of thing. The seas were tossing this boat, this ferry around as though it was nothing. And then there was waves and they were crashing uh, against the windows of the portholes incredibly loudly. And there was people all around me. I won't go into the details too much. Uh, but there was people around me seasick, and if they weren't seasick, what they were doing was screaming. And as a kid, just having all of this going on around me, I was absolutely terrified. I'm sure you can understand why I'd be terrified. What about you, though? Have you ever been in a, a ship uh, in, in stormy seas? Yes? No? Well, if not... Things are about to change for you. Uh, because this morning, what the author Luke does is he actually takes us back, doesn't he? He takes us back from that section of Jesus' teaching, and he takes us back into some of the events of Jesus' Galilean ministry. So we actually come here to a set of four miracles where Jesus displays incredible he exhibits incredible power. And for the first of these miracles, where does Luke take you exactly? He takes you aboard a boat, and it's a boat that is really struggling on the, on the seas, right? We're aboard the ship. Now, this is important, I think. Um, how Luke uh, records this event is actually going to shape everything that we do just now. I'll say that again. So the manner in which he writes this for us and records it for us is going to shape how you and I handle this uh, as a church just now. So, so what do I mean? Well, unlike uh, the other gospel accounts, what Luke does is he really strips this account right back to bare bones. Did you notice that? So there's, there's, there, there are very few flourishes, descriptions. You've got a skeleton really, for the most part, here. Why does Luke do that? He does it so that all the emphasis is going to fall on the two questions that end this account. Okay, so Luke strips everything back so that his readers are focused on the two questions at the end. So we are, you and I, just now, we're going to follow that uh, approach from the author. So we like to think about things, like, there's no headings, okay, but we like to think about things in threes, so you can think about things in threes if you want. What we'll do first of all is we will chart our way through this text, and we'll just look at a few different details, that's the first thing we'll do, and then what we'll do is we will turn our attention to those vital, critical questions that Luke, the author, wants his readers to focus in on. So you, you get it, you follow, you, you get the agenda, you see what's ahead. What do we do now? We pray and we ask God for help. Let's pray. Lord, we do fall before you 
we see in this portion of scripture that you are the God who deserves all awe and reverence and worship. And we pray that you would stimulate that in our hearts. Oh Lord, help us to see Jesus, we pray. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, um, if you are uh, fortunate enough on a break or a holiday to, to ever visit London, um, then one thing you'll maybe notice just now in London is the rise in what are called immersive experiences that are on offer in our, our, our nation's capital. Do you know the sorts of things, immersive experiences? These are attractions where you turn up at the location and you, you pay your money and they'll, they'll open the door and you enter into a brand new world, you know? These are sort of set up so that the person can visualize and actually interact with, you know, events from the past or events from fiction, immersive experience. So I was looking into it. Uh, at the moment, if you were in London, you could have an immersive experience of the gunpowder plot, if that floats your boat. Uh, or another one, you could have an immersive experience of War of the Worlds. Although how they managed to pull that off, I've got absolutely no idea. That is, though, the sort of thing that we need to have and we need to pursue, I think, this morning at St. Peter's. Because if we're honest about it, many of us are incredibly familiar with this portion of Scripture. And because of that, actually what brushes for you know, flows over us, is a, a sense almost of nonchalance with this text or a, a sense of apathy here. We're familiar with all of this. Well, that's not the, the, the way we should approach this text. So I'm urging you, immerse yourself in this, like invest in this and take yourself just now aboard this, this boat on the Sea of Galilee. Now, as we chart our way through this just now, and that's for the first thing that we're going to do, chart our way through it. I just want to highlight one or two things in this text. Some of the, if you'll allow, some of the details of this text. So let's do this. I tell you what, let's put up the whole of the text. So you've got it in front of you. We'll put it up on the screen uh, behind me. Let me just highlight a few of the details that we've got here. So you ready? Let's look at it. Number one, Note with me the timing, the timing. Do you see it right at the start? Luke says that this big event that we're dealing with, it happened one day. I quite like that, but it's vague, isn't it? Um, it's, for Scripture and for the Gospels, it's unusually vague as well, isn't it? But actually, what happens when you look at this in light of the other Gospel accounts, we see that this storm took place at night, so this, this storm took place in the evening, and it's in the evening of the same day where Jesus had been teaching in those parables that we've been looking, looking at recently. What does that, if you have immersed yourself in this, if you're aboard the boat, how does that shape things for you? What, what do you notice now? You should notice that it's dark as you survey the scene. That's the first thing. Second thing, what about the vessel? Like, if, as you're picturing that storm in the Sea of Galilee, and you've known about it, lots of you, since your Sunday school classes and so forth, how have you pictured that boat? What have you thought? Could be quite a small boat. Could be quite a small vessel. So recent 
archaeological findings have suggested that it was the case that rather compact boats were used now and again on the Sea of Galilee. So we, we know that now more than even we knew that a few years ago. That's fine. So it could be a small boat. But did you notice the unusual term for transport around Galilee here? Did you notice that verse 23? How did they get across? Did they row across? Look at this in verse 23. Is that they sailed and that's maybe to suggest to us that actually what we are aboard just now, what the, the disciples were aboard, is actually a much larger vessel, a sailing vessel that we've got here. So we've got what? Are you with me? We've got the timing, the vessel. Then, of course, let's think about this major event. Because if you, if you read on what happens, a windstorm happens. A windstorm, what does it like, sweeps down uh, on them on the lake. Now, here, let me just uh, ask you how you were with geography in school. Come on. Where, was geography, is that, is that what floated your boat? Was geography a, a favorite subject for you, was it? Uh, I, I have to be honest and say that geography really tended to disappoint me in school. You know, I, I wanted maps, right? I wanted globes and cities. And what do you get? You get rocks. Don't you? And you get like clouds and you get mountains and stuff. Uh, the reality is, though, that the topography of this particular part of the world is incredibly important for us to understand here. So, the Sea of Galilee, if we think about it geographically, it was, it was in a, an incredibly depressed location geographically. So, the Sea of Galilee sits about 700 feet below sea level. In addition to that, it sits there and it's surrounded by the Golan Heights. So it's sur surrounded by incredibly steep hills. You're already putting the pieces of the jigsaw together. And what, what happens at certain times of the year? Cold air is going to sweep down those mountains, isn't it? It's going to hit violently against the warm air that's sitting on top of a depressed lake. And everyone in the room knows what happens then. One word. What happens when this cold air sweeps down and smashes against warm air? What happens? Storms happen. Don't they? Storms happen. And man alive, that's what we're experiencing. Like on one hand, you do have to appreciate in this story, it's the idea of a Sudden, sudden storm um, comes out. The blue Matthew's gospel makes that clear. On the other hand, you have to appreciate that it was an unusually violent episode. Are you there? But can you picture what's happened here? All of a sudden, in the darkness, hurricane force winds have swept up and water is crashing against it. the noise of this and water is pouring over the, the sides of this vessel. And if you, at this moment, if you look around in this boat, what reaction do you see in people's faces? Do you see it? Yeah. Experienced fishermen. The guys who have spent their whole lives on this body of water, they are fearing for their very lives. Don't you, don't you notice it? In the, in the language that the fishermen use and the, the repeated use of Jesus' title, don't you sense their panic? 
Because what do these fishermen cry out? Do you know it? Master, master, we're, we're perishing here. I hope everyone in the room gets the idea. This is no ordinary storm. It would seem that all lives on board are very much at this point under threat. So we've got time in vessel. We've got the, the main event. What, what do we have to deal with next? Last here. Of course. We have to consider this miracle that occurs, the miracle. I, I see this uh, probably too often uh, from the, the front and in preaching, but there is genuinely at this point a, an error that we could probably slip into. There's a little mistake that we could make, um, and it's a mistake that has been made uh, through church history in, in the past. If we just look at the language that Jesus uses do you, do you see what Luke tells us? He tells us that Jesus, what's the word? He rebuked the storm. Isn't that wonderful? He rebukes the storm. But because of that, lots of people in church history have assumed that there must have been a demonic force uh, behind uh, the winds and the waves. Do you, do you see the idea of rebuking as though what's happening is that the devil himself has whipped up this storm and gal, this is a battle between good and evil. I don't suppose that's right if we take a broader approach. If you look at the language elsewhere in Scripture, this is language that Jesus uses really of many different sort of threats that, that, that faces people. So Jesus does rebuke the demonic but Jesus, you know this, Jesus also rebukes disease. He also rebukes dangers like this. And, and, and more than focusing on that, isn't it, isn't it the result of the rebuke that should draw your attention and, and my attention? Do you see what happens? I mean, Jesus admonishes the storm, and as suddenly as the storm was swept up at this the mere sound of Jesus' voice, the storm subsides, leading to what? Yeah, yes, yes, leading to this instantaneous calm. But again, if you look at everyone's faces in the boat, what does it lead to? It leads to confusion and, and wonder as all these people in the boat, they now stare at him. They stare at this figure. They, they stare at this man before them who evidently has authority even over the winds and the waves. I, I know you are familiar with this portion of Scripture. We all are. But that does not make it any less remarkable. Now, a few years ago, uh, a really good friend of mine, his car uh, started to play up and it started to play up in a, in a dangerous way. Um, it, was, it, was, it was quite strange. So it didn't happen all the time. If it happened all the time, okay, fine. Didn't. Just every now and again, what he would do is he would press down on the accelerator. And what would happen is that the car would enter a sort of limp mode. You maybe get the idea, right? So didn't happen. if it happened all the time, okay. But just every now and again, you put down the accelerator and the car just didn't respond. It almost got, just got slower, entered this limp mode. Now, you can see what I mean about that being dangerous. Like, imagine you're, you're, I've got to overtake this tractor. 
And, you know, you, you, you accelerate fine, you get out, and you can see that there's cars coming. You put the, your foot down, it enters limp mode, and it doesn't respond. That, that could be pretty terrifying. I wonder how we would describe the issue. I think we would describe it like this, that the power of the car failed to kick in, didn't it? The power from the car failed to kick in. Now, I want you to take that image, shelve it for 30 seconds. And I want you to turn with me now to the first of these two questions that Luke, that the Holy Spirit, wants the reader to, to focus on. So do, do you see what, where we are in the story? Jesus has commanded, rebuked the storm, and everything, shh, everything has suddenly gone quiet. And then Jesus turns to his followers, verse 25, and he says to his disciples on the boat, he says these words, where is your faith? St. Pierce, does everyone see what's happened? Do you see what's happened? Jesus has rebuked the winds and the waves. It's now turn for Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Where is your faith? I think the first thing that we have to deal with is what this is not. We need to have this clear in our heads. I hope that you see that this is not about initial faith, is it? Can you see that? This is not about saving faith. This is not Jesus using this moment in the boat as opportunity for an evangelistic appeal. That's not this. No, this is not about an absence, but this is about a failure of faith. Go back to your shelf. Take the image of the car back. Do, do, do you see it? As it was with my friends, uh, what was it, a Sia Alhambra. As it was for my friend's car, do you see the issue with the disciples? The issue is that at a critical moment, their faith has failed to, to kick it in. Do you see, you, you could argue with me, I suppose you could say, but, but Andy, they did cry out to Jesus. Do you not remember the master, master bit? Yeah, but surely we all see that that was just out of desperation, wasn't it? That wasn't out of faith or expectation or belief in Jesus. They were just panicked. And I think it's another author, an author who helps us here a lot, because what he does is he rephrases Jesus' question here, where is your faith? And he rephrases it to help us as a statement. I think it really brings out what happens. Jesus looks at his disciples, and the idea is, quite simply, you should have been more trusting. Where is your faith? You should have been more trusting. Now, Christian friends, come on. As you see that failure of faith, what's your inclination? What's the first thing that you do? What do you see? Tell you, tell you what I think. I think that's me. That's us, isn't it? Like so often as Christians, I think, do you know what? All of us as Christians can, can look back when we've gone through troubled water, you know, when the storms have raged in our lives. And how often, as you look back on your Christian experience, how often 
Has your faith in Christ failed to kick in? I'm looking at this and I'm thinking there are so many times in my life where Jesus could have said to me, Andy, where is your faith? After all that's been done and who I am, where is your faith? Well, that we might grow. What I think God gives us right now here in this text, he gives us three truths. Now listen. These are three truths that should help address the limp mode of our faith. Three truths in this episode that they should help to reinforce our faith. I am very, very keen that we, we get these. That helps us to grow. So what do we see? Number one, get these. Number one, we see here that Jesus sovereignly oversees the storms of our lives. Did you get it? We see here Jesus sovereignly oversees our storms. Because look back, do this with me, look back at the very first verse in verse 22. I'll give it over to you. Who is it in the story that instigates this journey? Do you see it there? Jesus says, let us go across. Who is it? So we have our Lord suggest they take, isn't that an amazing detail? Who is he? He is the one who, who knows all things. And what does Jesus do? He takes his people into those waters, knowing not only what lies ahead, but also knowing how he's going to use this storm for good. And I hope you hear that, Christian friend. I hope that you hear that for your own experience. Because it might be in this room, it might be a whole number of Christians who today are going through a storm the likes of which they have never before encountered. And if that's not you, the reality is that, do you know, this week is going to happen to some of us. Like this week, for, for maybe for quite a few of us, we're going to hit storms. What must we cling to? We must cling to the fact that Jesus Christ has not only known about that event, whatever it is from of old, but Jesus Christ, our loving Lord, has even planned to use this storm in order to bring you closer to him. Jesus sovereignly oversees the storms of our lives. That's the first thing. The second of the three, Jesus has even set you an example to follow in the storm. Because there's a detail. It's not a long text, is it? I mean, we can fit it all on a screen just about. It's not a long text. But there is a detail here that I have not mentioned thus far. And it's by far and away my favorite detail of the whole text. Can you work out what it is? Uh, as not just when the storm starts... But at the point where the storm is at its most violent, so we pictured that, the darkness, the noise, the noise, and the fact that the boat's probably breaking apart and there's water pouring in. What's Jesus doing? <laughs> I mean, with all respect, 40 winks. Like Jesus genuinely is asleep at the heart of this storm. Now, of course, there's a crucial lesson that helps us here about Jesus' humanity. Well, don't you marvel at that reality that the eternal Son of God has so condescended 
and taken upon flesh that he needed to sleep. You in here and you're weary and you're fatigued and, a, and under pressure of all these lives here. Is your Savior a Savior for you? Yeah, of course. But what else does that sleeping do? Like, does it not set us an illustration of what Christ is calling for from you in your storms of your life? Do, do you see what it is? Like, in Christ saying to us, where is your faith? Surely what Jesus is doing is challenging us to follow his lead, to follow after the lead of the one who, knowing that this storm was coming, what, what is he able to do? He's able to put his head down and fall asleep as he trusts in the protective hand of his heavenly father. He sets an example for you. And then the third of these, I want to say to you, we see here that Jesus is with you through the storm. And I, I, if you allow it, I would love to speak to the younger Christians in the room. Um, I suppose I mean by that a couple of different things. Uh, so yes, those who are you know, young people or students or whatever, yeah, I mean that. But also those who are young in faith, who have professed faith recently. Um, friends, what you must hear time and time again from the pulpit is that the life of Christian discipleship is a life chocked full of storms. You must be prepared for that. The life of discipleship is a life full of, of ups and downs and, and, and storms. Jesus doesn't say in the Bible uh, to you as you begin this life of discipleship that things are going to be easy. Jesus says the opposite. But what has God in his goodness promised to his people? Now, where would your mind go? Your mind might go to the end of Matthew's gospel, and we all love those words. Jesus says... But I am with you always to the very end of the age. And I love that. You love those words. But maybe today you are the eye of a storm as a Christian. Then you hear and take in God speak to you from Isaiah 43. Because there our Lord says to you, But when you pass through the water, I will be with you. Do you see, just as it was in Luke chapter 8, our hope for these present and coming storms, our hope lies solely in the fact that Jesus, our beloved Savior, will never leave us nor forsake us. Never. Isn't it of comfort? Like, who's there with us through this? The one who loves us and the one who is sovereign over this event, he is in the boat he is always in the boat with you, Christian friends. Now, I, I don't want to be accused of being a liar. So don't go there. Uh, but I do want to slightly adjust what I said earlier on. Um, earlier on at the start of the sermon, I said that the author strips back everything. It's bare bones, this. Because Luke wants us to pay close attention to these two questions at the end. Said that? Uh, and that's true. So don't attack me at the door. You liar. I don't want that. But as true as that is, the reality is that even more than the first question, where is your faith? 
even more than that, it's the very last phrase that this section is structured to emphasize. So can you all see it, either in front of you in Scripture or on the screen? Jesus calms everything. He rebukes his disciples. They look at each other. And what do they say? Just to look at the start of it. They ask, who then is this? Who is this? Now, uh, two very brief things as we close. Number one, a word on the tone. Uh, I've said this before, but, and I hope you're with me on this, but isn't there uh, often when you're reading your Bible and you read a quote that you want to know how that was asked? Don't we want to know sometimes what was the tone uh, in this quest, like, uh, well, look what leads into it. Do you, do you see? We are told immediately beforehand that the disciples were afraid. What are they afraid of? Because it's not the storm. Do you, do you see the storm by this stage has completely subsided? It's beautifully calm. Do, do you see? What is it that they are more fearful of than the storm? Jesus, do you hear it now? Like, there is awe, and there is wonder in their voice as they utter those words, who then is this, this in the boat with us? So that's a word about tone. But the second of the two things is a word, is a word about irony. Irony. Because what are they trying to work out? What's the question about? It's about Jesus' identity, isn't it? Come on. It's about Jesus. Who, who's this? But, do you see the irony? If you take in the whole question, do you notice that the, actually the, the, the question itself in its entirety kind of answers their question? Look at it with me. Who then is this? <clears throat> that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. If we're going to understand this, of course, what we have to do is come at this from the perspective of the Old Testament. And look around. Look, who, who are we? We are a psalm-singing church, okay? St. Peter's, if, if the people at Dundee know anything about us, they know that we sing psalms. We're a psalm-singing church. So we should have, you and I should have all the ammunition that we need, all the information in order to answer this question, who is this? So let me give you three. One, you ready? Psalm 104. Do you know it? What do we learn there? Listen. We learn there that it was and is God alone who has control over the wind. Listen. God is the one who rides on the wings of the wind. Let's add a second, shall we? Psalm 106. What do we learn there? You ready for this? Not only do we learn there that it's God alone who is in charge of the seas. Wait for this detail. The very same verb that is used here of Jesus is used in the Greek translation of Psalm 106 of God's work alone. What's the verb? You ready for it? And God, Yahweh, is the one who rebukes the seas. And you want the third? You want the last one? 
Psalm 107. There, again, the same thing happens, a verb used of Jesus that's attributed to the work of God alone. But wait a minute. Let me read to you just one line, two lines from Psalm 107. And my question to you is this. Does this not sound like Jesus' activity in Luke 8? You ready for it? This is way back in the Psalms of God's activity alone. Listen. The waves of the sea, they mounted up to heaven. What about the men on board? They reeled and staggered like drunken men at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord, and he delivered them from distress. But what does God alone do? Ready? God made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Do you not recognize why the disciples in that boat are asking, who then is this? They recognize this is more than just a teacher. This is more than just a prophet of old. They recognize God is at work here. You could rephrase and adjust this question. And they're asking, could it be? Could it be that God himself is in this boat with us? Now, if you have been at St. Peter's over these months, <laughs> where we have been looking at Luke's gospel together, I am hoping with everything that I am that you understand what Luke is doing here in structuring and phrasing things like this. Do, do you see what he's doing? In putting this question, who then is this, on the disciples' lips, he is pushing the reader not just to ask the same question, but this morning he is pushing the reader to seek to answer the question. And so I end by turning it over to you. What is your answer? Who then is this Jesus of Nazareth? I hope and pray that you see this morning with the eyes of faith, this Jesus of Nazareth is none other than God made flesh. I hope you see that the reason that the winds and the waves obeyed Jesus is what? Do you know what? They recognized his voice. They recognized in Jesus the voice of the one who created the wind and created the waves in the first place. I hope you see that Jesus of Nazareth is the one who at the cross of Calvary at Golgotha, though he could have at any point whipped up a hurricane, to avoid that plight. What did Jesus do there? At Calvary, he entered a storm for you, a storm of God's wrath. He faced the floodwaters of God's judgment that he might bear our sin. May it be, as we sing the last item of praise this morning, may there be even just the faintest quiver in your voice. May it be that the tone is wonder. The tone is awe. As you worship corporately, Emmanuel, you worship Jesus as you worship God with us. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray.